Welcome to WCSU 411, a podcast about people and achievements at Western Connecticut State University. Today we're talking with one of our art professors, Plonian Nixon, who has experiences that none of the rest of us do. Plonia was a child during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, also known as Holland, during World War II, and we will discuss that as well as what she has done since. Afterward, Barbara Viegas will tell us what's happening on campus. But now, let's talk with Plonia. Well, Plonia, thank you for uh, joining us on this podcast today. You're welcome. And uh, I want to talk to you about the experiences that you've had that um, uh, I'm sure no one else on campus or maybe in the city of Danbury or in Western Connecticut uh, has had. You grew up in Holland. You were born in Holland. Yes. And as a young girl, you were living in occupied Holland, occupied by the Nazis. Yeah. During World War II. Yeah, from 10 to 15 to 16. Mm. That must have seemed like a long time. I don't know. After, if, if I look back now, it doesn't seem that long. But, <laughs> but when you're young, time is different than when you're old. You That's know? true. Yeah. But five years under the Nazis is a long time. It is That's a so. long time. Yeah. But it was not always as hard as it was at certain times. Hmm. Yeah. Well, when they invaded Poland, was that actually, uh, I'm trying to remember, and I just read a history of World War II, but it was uh, the... the when Germany invaded Holland, that was really uh, before World War II was officially declared, right? It was before, certainly before um, Pearl Harbor. But uh, had Britain declared war on uh, Germany then when Germany invaded Holland? I'm not sure whether it did or not. You know, I was a little kid and I remember when it started, but I don't know whether other countries were already at war. I think it was one of the first... Uh, Germany's yeah, we first were so offensive, close. right? Yeah, one Ge- of the first countries Germany took over, and we were so weak, right? Defenseless, really, yeah. compared to Germany. Oh especially. yeah, oh god, yeah. So when they first came in and took over the government, uh, were the, did you notice differences right away? No, no, I no, we I, I heard them come in hmm. at the night of uh, I think it was May ten or something like that, because there was an endless sound of airplanes crossing. Mm. They were on their way to Rotterdam, you know, that was just erased of the map. Mm. And they flew right over us because where I lived was very close to the German border and Mm. we were right in the line from Germany to Rotterdam. Mm -hmm. So for hours we heard these airplanes coming over and we were like, "What's what's going on? And then friends of us who were English The woman came running over and said, the Germans are coming in. They are going to bomb us all to pieces. Mm -hmm. We have to flee to England. Uh, But what do you do, you know? Nothing. You cannot just pick up your stuff and go. Where do you go? Well, especially if you're not English. Did that English family leave or did they stay? No, they stayed. They couldn't get out of the country anymore. It was too late, so they stayed during the whole war. But um, that was the beginning of it, and that was the an eerie feeling to hear these airplanes coming in. 
What, did you have a radio that would talk about what Well, was we going did on? have still radios, mm-hmm. yeah, but that was only for a short time. As soon as the Germans came in, it was totally forbidden to listen to any radio. But we had one clandestine in a closet, and my father went there every night and listened to the BBC, you know, and the English radio, hmm. which we are not supposed to do. No, you could have been killed. He could have been killed. Oh, easily. You were killed for no reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when did you first, um, did the soldiers come in and occupy your town then, right away? Not all that right away. It took a while before they finally took over parts of the town and confiscated houses. And, but basically, we didn't notice much in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I was only about 10 or 11 years old. So, Did was, your dad still go to work? My my father went to work the first yeah the first couple of whatever days weeks months he went to work but then the Germans began to hold razzias as they were called to get young men to work for Germany and my father had a hiding place in our thatched roof where he then fled and was lying flat out when the Germans knocked on the door because they wanted to get a young men. And so that was really the beginning that we began to notice the war. So they were rounding up men to take to Germany and use as workers there? Yeah, because States. their own men had to fight in the war, of mm. course. And the Dutch army was, was in two weeks where they were gone. They were nothing compared to the Germans. Mm-hmm. So. so your dad had to hide out then basically from the beginning of... Uh uh, invasion. If they had the razzias, otherwise he just went on his bicycle and did his work until finally they took the office also. Hmm. What was his job? He was a barrister, he, uh, a state lawyer. Really? Yeah. Uh, so they were probably looking for him for that too, right? I mean, that was probably a dangerous job. It was, yeah. Well, there was re- there was no real reason, you know, not that you could say they want them for this or that. But basically, they were all deported to Germany if they got men, mm-hmm. and then you either got them back after the war or they disappeared. Was your dad deported during no. the war? Oh. No, he has always been able to escape into his little hiding place, and they never found it. There was a. Um I know from talking to you before about this that it wasn't, uh, uh, oh, the Nazis replaced the regular police in town and the mayor, it was, and life went on. It was um, uh, much more difficult than that. Yeah. At one point, there was an uprising in Holland uh, against Germany, and German, the Germans punished the entire country. Yes. And kept food from coming into the country. Oh, yeah. But the worst part was that if we did anything to sabotage the Germans, they shot people mm-hmm. just like that. And they, I, I remember went to school one day because I still went to go to, was going to school and bicycle to school. And there were 17 dead bodies lying in their blood on the corners of the street. And with the warning, that's what will happen to you if you do anything against us. You know, so we saw that regularly. Did you have any idea what those people had done? They had done nothing. Hmm. No, they were like people that they took and shot whenever they could grab them. And of course, all the Jews disappeared from school. Hmm. Was there a big Jewish population in Holland? Yeah, Hmm. very big, especially in in Amsterdam and places like that. And so they just shipped them all out? They 
put them on cattle trains, to put them in concentration camps where most of them never came back. Mm-hmm. Now, and two of my uncles were um, hiding Jews. We all tried to help them, of course. And um, they were betrayed and they were picked up. And one went to Bergen-Belsen, the other went to Buchenwald, mm-hmm. were in the concentration camps and were finally, at the end of the war, when the Americans came in, they were liberated. But most of them, there were piles of bodies lying there, skeletons and bodies that were supposed to go to the gas chambers to be burned. But when the Americans came in, they took the bodies in trucks. And one of my uncles was lying on top of one of these piles, and he could only move his eyes. Mm. And so one of the soldiers said, this guy is still alive. And they took him off. And so he came back finally, Hmm. but he never made it for long. A year later, he died because he was just. Yeah. And the other uncle. And the other uncle was also found in a cot in the other concentration Hmm. camp, also skin over bones, and he died also. Hmm. And uh, you remember, you have, um, or you told me about the day that uh, the Germans were driven out, too. They were running through the streets, right? <laughs> well, that was after five years of occupation, of mm-hmm. course, yeah. And um, I remember because we were on a road in the village where I lived. There was a main road that went from the west to east, to, so they came through our village. And there were basically only old men and young boys that came back in a shabby yeah. row of people that were driven out by the tanks of the incoming Americans and Canadians. We were mostly liberated by the Canadians. Mm. So, and, and we saw them straggle home, taking whatever they could, biz them like horses and, and whatever was left because they ate everything they could find anyway. So, so that, yeah, we saw them disappear and we all were like, oh my God. But before they were totally gone, they set fire to the houses that they had uh, confiscated on our street because they, we had a whole camp next to us at Spergebiet. And Rauter, the big guy there, hmm. was the head of that whole thing. And he, um, but our house was just outside the fence. And so the night that we were liberated, we were all in the cellar because they were shooting over us and back and forth and back and forth. The grenades were exploding everywhere. So we were sitting in the cellar and that uh, night they set the houses that they had confiscated. The woman that that was in the house across from us, her house was confiscated. So the Germans had made that into an office. She lived with us, plus her three kids had a dog. And we all sat in a little cellar that was not much bigger than what you see here with the table mm-hmm. to the wall. And my mother was totally catatonic. She did, couldn't move. She, could, she just sat there and shook, shook. And my father and I were the only ones, I was about 15 at the time, so we were the only ones that were sort of, and the woman that was with her three kids also in the cellar. We listened and we heard a rattling on our thatched roof so we went outside to see what was happening and our roof was on fire. 
because she had set fire to the office, the houses that they had confiscated. Her house was blown up while we were standing on the road. She saw it go up mm. and fall into pieces down. Only the chimney was standing, and the flak was all falling around us and the roof. Yes, these these fires burned without any way to get them out. Of course, they didn't want them to go out because all their documents were in these houses, so they burned them on purpose. And they fell on our thatched roof, and the roof caught fire on the kitchen side. So my father and Mrs., uh, who was staying with us, and I went out there. And my father put a ladder up there, and he took a big container with our meal that was a bunch of spinach that was sitting there that was our only meal that we would have he took the whole thing up with strengths that you wouldn't even and he went up there and he threw it on the roof and the whole attached part burning fell over him he fell down with the ladder and took me down too of course because i was holding the ladder but he the whole part that was burning fell on the ground so that was the end of the fire otherwise our whole house would have gone right by second-hand fire. And so, well, he had all kind of blotches, but nobody cared whether he was wounded or not. We lived, and the house was sort of saved. And then we went all back in the cellar and waited and waited. And finally, it became very quiet. And it was very eerie, because all the time we had heard shots. We had heard the, the rain of the of the burning stuff that came onto our roof. And so we just said, what's going on? So we went back outside again, and it was eerie, but there was still flak everywhere from grenades that had been exploding. And so finally we heard footsteps. There was a guy, there was a band from the underground, the Dutch underground, and he um, said, go back in the cellar, the war is over, but there are snipers all over the place. Stay in the cellar until we let you know that you can get out. So we sat in the cellar again, but the war was over. I mean, my God, that moment still gives me goosebumps, mm-hmm. you know. And so that was the moment that uh, finally the end was in sight. And the next morning they said we could get out. And there we were. <laughs> were people celebrating? No, not not immediately because your heart, but you don't believe it. You really cannot believe that it's over because you have been five years under this suppression, you know. So you don't really. Is it really over? And so, but it was. It was over. And then finally, the Canadians came in, threw us big tins with tack to eat, chocolate, cigarettes, you know, mm-hmm. over the tanks. And so we then began to celebrate, of course, but there was not much to celebrate with. Right. You, can, you, you didn't have uh, cake or other stuff. That you champagne. <laughs> a champagne to fire. No, there was nothing there. We were all pretty hungry, but uh, first thing we wanted was a steak, of course, but that <laughs> took a long time before we had that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that was basically the, when the end was there. And then from then on, yeah, you have to just rebuild it all. And it is still eerie. The whole thing is still weird. And it took a while to rebuild too, right? You rebuild your whole life. You, yeah, you have to change your whole life, you know, because you have been living with the threat of the Germans around you. Because one time when I um, 
came out of school with a friend. We were walking, we were going to uh, to the swimming pool where we could still take a bath once in a while. There was a municipal swimming pool. And we came out of there, and in that little uh, alley that was there were two Germans in front of us before the, before the war was over, of course. And they were pushing each other. We were kind of drunk. And so they were pushing. So you cannot shoot that guy. You cannot shoot that guy. You cannot. You're too drunk to hit him. Oh, said the other one. You think I can't? And they shoot him dead right in front of us. You know, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. We were used to that. And, 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 and these bodies that we found on the side of the road during the war that were just lying there with, as a warning for us not to do anything to sabotage the Germans. And one time when I went to my piano lesson, because we tried to live as normal as you could, I had my books under my arm and I went to the house of the woman who was my teacher. And I was halfway and there were two Germans sitting on a bench there and they summoned me to come over there and I was about maybe 14 or something I was a nice girl to look at so you never know what can happen so they said what have, what do you have under your arm there so I showed him my piano books and he said Mendelssohn he is a Jew are you out of your mind and they took the book and they tore it into pieces but better than than me right so you know so that these sort of things you had to Daily, you had to daily work this. You, if you had a bicycle, it was confiscated. Mm. You know, um, my mother, who before long before the war, as a young girl, worked in Germany as a, as a stenographer, sp- spoke fluently German, and that has saved us several times. Because one day she was picked up, on, uh, they wanted her bicycle, and she said, "No, you cannot take the bicycle because." I'm just called by the Ortskommandantur and ik and ik haast mij om daarheen te gaan allemaal in German of course ik beile mich dahin zu fahren and uh, they said oh oh okay and so she pretended that she went into the house of the Ortskommandantur that was pretty close mm-hmm. so she was saved by the fact that she spoke German and they came to our house also to confiscate it one day and they said, you have to be out of here at 3.30. All of it has to be out of it. You ha- we need the house. And so we had, um, well, what do you do? You try to save some stuff, some personal stuff like clothes. And, and, and so you put it all in. Because we had to be out of there in a couple of hours. So you cannot take anything with, very much with you. So, But my mother had assembled also clandestine was not allowed to do that, pictures of the royal family. Hmm. The The Dutch royal family. Yeah, the Dutch royal family who was in Canada and in England, but the queen was in England and the princess with the kids were in Canada and stuff like that. So she had a lot of pictures there that she had smuggled behind a mirror in a closet. And when they took that whole closet out, it fell flat on its face and all the pictures flew right to the ground and at that time the postman came in and he had his black cape that he had and he fell over those pictures and hit them grabbed them all together so the Germans never found out but what they did find out is that I had 
what I was trying to save as a kid, little kid was two boxes, one box with shells that I assembled and, and another box with feathers because we had a little zoo close by and I had helped taking care of the birds there. So I had a whole box with colored feathers that I loved. And one of the Germans said, what's in the box? So I had to show him and he said, oh, I'll take that for my daughter because she's assembled. So, I mean, it was not only the big things, but also the little things as a kid that you have to cope with. He took the shells, he took the feathers for his daughter. They were gone. It was my treasures at the time. So these sort of things you had to cope with for years and years and years. And also being in school, slowly you saw all the Jewish kids disappear. Our rector of the gymnasium where I was a student was replaced with a German uh, collaborator. And we tried to sabotage him, of course. We wrote songs that praise our queen in our agendas, you know, and stuff like that. And we tried to tease him, but we had to be very careful. And the Klaviger was above him. The man that was standing at the door was in rank above the director of the school. So that was weird. Mm-hmm. But he was able to... to um, Get all the names of all the Jewish kids, and slowly they disappeared, 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 and we never knew where they went. Because we had in our house a, a Jewish girl that we, a Jewish girl that we hid for a year, and her parents were taken, talk, taken by an uncle of mine to Spain. So they went from there to America, but the little kids stayed with us for a year, and. We had, couldn't talk about her. We had to be very careful, of course. And so, but finally, somebody took her, and they went. Hmm. We never know where she went. But we were not betrayed, so we still had the chance of having that kid safe. But the wonderful thing was that the other people that we had saved, the day after the war, a couple of weeks later, we got packages from America, which I was the first one to wear jeans. Huh. The first one to wear nylon stockings, you know, that sort of stuff that you didn't even hear of in Holland. And so they sent us all that sort of stuff, being so happy. But I think they got through it. So, Hmm. but that was really an an, an, uh, exception. My, one of my uncles, who was a brother of my father, and his girlfriend rode people to England over the North Sea. Really? They rode them until the Germans could not hear a motorboat. They couldn't take a motorboat because they would be spotted. Mm-hmm. But they rode them halfway and then a motorboat came from England, picked them up in the middle where nobody could hear them and they went to England. He was luckily never caught. So he'd come back then to Holland and then do it again? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They did it repeatedly. Mm. Oh, yeah. At night, at night, they went out there. They were part of the underground. Mm. And we had a very strong underground. And he was part of it. And so, um, and his girlfriend. And so they, every night, they had Jews that they rode to, mm. towards England. And then they were picked up halfway when nobody could hear a motorboat coming to pick them up. 
So he was risking his life every oh, yeah. day then. Oh, yeah. Because he just would have been butchered if he had... Uh... Oh, he would have been thrown right in front of somebody's front door. That's what happens if you... Mm-hmm. I had another, another story that was very... That, that hit me very hard because these things happened without me knowing until after the war, you know. But um, when, I, um, when I was in school, one day we were told by the Germans to come out and walk past a table that they had put up on, on a standard. There was a body lying on it, a 16-year-old girl. And it was a warning to us because she was caught in the canal that, the, that made so much trouble for the English, for the Americans to come towards us. She was swim, sw- caught swimming over the canal with directions for the Americans. But she was caught and she was sh- tortured. She was lying there with her hands here and all her nails were pulled out. We saw that. And then they shot her because she didn't tell them. So we had to look at that. But that's what you kids, what happens to you kids if you do that sort of thing. See, uh, and these were basically little things because, but to us they were, of course, horrible things. How do you recover or get over that or not get over, but how do you go on with your life after the war then? Well, it is amazing how we basically we try to keep our life going during the war with all these things happening around you. But in a way you get calloused. Hmm. And when you, when the war was over, well, you're young, you know, I was in my early teens, so you sort of, I don't know how you do it, but you get, you get over it. Mm-hmm. You didn't have nightmares afterwards? Oh, you sometimes, yeah, it comes. Mm-hmm. Even now, I sometimes have things coming back. Mm-hmm. But it wears off. It wears off. And, and you're, you get resilient in a way, you know. But you just have to adjust. There's no way you can. You, you, and some kids and some all the people, you know, go into the underground and work against the German. I never did that because I was still a little kid. So. Right. What about um, your parents? How did they, how were they after the war? Well, my mother was one of the most courageous people I've ever seen, you know, because when they came to our personal, to our house, we had to all live in one room and they had a guy with a rifle standing in the little portico that led into the hallway and we all huddled in one room and they took over the other rooms so we lived more or less together Hmm. but it was totally they were enemies so it was totally creepy to do that but my mother who spoke german and it's funny if you speak fluent german and you stand on it, really, like my mother did, they cower. Hmm. The Germans are real cowards, hmm. you know, and I don't want to insult you. I don't know whether you are. No, I'm not sure. No. Good. Well, then I, because ugh, later on you don't want to insult people anymore. But but, um, but my mother, when they came to the door and they said, you have, at 3.30 you have to be out of here. When they came earlier than that, my mother went to the door and said, are you out of your mind? You gotta go. You said 3.30 and it is 2.30 out. She did that and they, they went, they went. 
she was really incredibly brave, except when we were sitting in the cellar, she was totally catatonic, you know, that she couldn't do it any longer. Mm. But if she could stand up and tell them what she thought of them, she was never hit or anything. We, we held our breath, you know, mm-hmm. because they were always running around with their revolvers out if you didn't do what they said. And my father was brave too, you know, he worked until he, we bicycled endlessly to get an egg or a sort of bit of butter. And we, of course, gave traded all our blankets, jewelry, whatever you had. And my father worked for a lot of estates around us. And they were big estates, farmers' estates, you know. So he did a lot of work and he always said, don't pay me, give me some bread, give me some eggs, give me something like that. And I, as I was the oldest of the two, my sister was younger. So I bicycled on my little bicycle hours to get a little box of eggs or bread or something like that. One day I bicycled next to a dike and the train to Germany went over that dike with Mm. ammunition and RAF came in and were bombing and I jumped off my bicycle and was lying against in a little little stream underneath there, you know, waiting until I got hit. But I didn't get hit. They didn't even hit the train. Hmm. But 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 it was that was what you had to cope with, you know. And so you bicycled and you got back with six eggs and it was a trip for hours that you sat on that little bicycle mm-hmm. and back. And if they got you, they took it away from you, of course. So you the whole way you were looking out with those eggs and your whatever you had with you. Mm-hmm. And then they would shoot you too, you know, if you because you sabotaged them. So they would not take that. So that sort of stuff you had to cope with basically daily. And we had fightings above us in, in our house. The Germans came over, the RAF came from the other side and they had fights in the Dog air. Fights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, air fights. And they shot each other and, and we just huddled in the cellar most of the time. But one day we were out there and we were sort of watching what was going on because it happened right in front of us. And one uh, bullet went into a coal bin, didn't explode, mm. and but it shot one of the airplanes and the English jumped out on parachutes, were shot in the air and fell to their death. One of the parachutes got hung up in the tree. Mm. And the next day I went out and got that parachute. And I used it in a school play for a gown for Antigone Mm. that we put on the stage. Mm. And I had a beautiful green nylon or silkish, whatever it was at the time, I don't even know gown that I made out of the parachute of this dead soldier. But these are the weird things that happen to you, you know. And then I found that bullet in that coal hawk of the neighbors. If they had put it in their stove, it would have exploded. But I found it. So they made me a little tiny tart from a little sugar that they still had and a little whatever they had. But that was a great luxury, but otherwise mm. it could have been blown up. Mm-hmm. But I went afterwards because I had heard it go through the roof. So I said, it is in there. You better, we better find it. 
And at that time I was about 14 or maybe 15, and so I found it. How do you feel about Germans now? Well, when I came to America, it was kind of funny. We first lived in New York, New York for three years, and then we went to New Fairfield, where Dick had his property. And the whole road had German cars, ger- cars with the German D on it. Hmm. I said to Dick, why do you, why, why are all these Germans here, you know? Well, it turned out later, of course, they were all nice guys. One had his leg shot off fighting against the Russians. You cannot blame these people. They were this old when they were mm-hmm. asked to come and fight. Just kids. Yeah, they mm-hmm. were old. When they finally left us, they were only very old men and very young kids mm-hmm. that you saw scrambling back to Germany. Mm. But that was... The, and in, uh, so many died in, in Russia, of course. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them died, yeah, everywhere where they were, in, in France, you know, the God, Pat, Patton killed a lot of them, you know, that book about Patton is a really great book, if you mm-hmm. ever read that, I read it, O'Reilly wrote it, I know he is not in the in anymore, but I read his books, and Patton book is really great, if you read all that, you say, oh yeah, my God, I remember vaguely, you know, right? what happened then. And, of course, the uh, soldiers weren't necessarily Nazis. They were just uh, no. forced into... Um... No. And we had a camp next door to our house. We had a big uh, fence there. And behind that fence, they had a German camp in the woods because I lived in the woods. And the officers there wanted to make friends with my father by offering him a little sugar, a little butter. And my father said, no, no, don't. But he was not challenging them, you know, Mm -hmm. because so they had no reason to shoot him and they wanted to make friends. Hmm. And when, and the the guy was a lawyer too, you know, so my, he could have, they talked once in a while and my father just tried to hold it off, but you cannot insult them because then you get shot. So there were a lot of these guys that don't want, didn't want to be there. And certainly not the little Jugend yeah, Hitler Jugend kids mm-hmm. that were there, you know, they don't want to be there. They were just sent to us. And they had their punishment. God, there was nothing left of Germany after that, you know. So I, whenever I meet Germans now, I don't even think about it anymore. Because most of the older people are dead by sure. now. Because people that were then young, and when I was young, are now all in their 80s and 90s and right. they're gone. Mm-hmm. So these people can't help it. No, you, you, I don't uh, make any difference. To, it doesn't make any difference anymore. But I sabotaged when I came back to school. I didn't want to learn German. Mm-hmm. And we had a wonderful German teacher, but we sabotaged her all the time. We <laughs> did not want to have anything to do with German. Yeah, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. And it is not a, it's a beautiful language, but if you hear it spoken by soldiers in a horrible way, then it is a terribly strong, awful language. Mm-hmm. And how did you, when did you move then to the United States? I moved in, I was 41, so I was in 1971. So you were uh, out of college and an adult and oh, had yeah. your life there in Holland yeah, before but, you moved here. Yeah, I, first I went to Amsterdam because I studied in Amsterdam. And after the war, we got all the American hippies in, as you <laughs> 
probably remember that it was the 70s, 50s first. And everybody came to Holland because Holland was such a wonderful country, basically, for hippies. Mm-hmm. And that went on into the 70s. And um, I wanted to go to the art academy, but my parents said, well, we are not so sure that we want you to go there. Because so we, because we lived way in the in the boondocks, so mm-hmm. to speak, in the backlands. And Amsterdam was a weird city after the war. And so we, and my parents went over there and they checked out the academy and said, no, no child of us is going there. It's a mess. So I did what I second liked more, much. It was, uh, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Hmm. And so I went to study biology. But um, after a while, I, when I got confronted with the fact that I had to learn by heart about 6,000 Latin names for plants, I said, that is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. And by that time, a woman who was very famous in Holland, she was an, an um, she, she wrote and drew articles for um, a, ma- a great magazine in Holland. And she was in the fashion world. And she started a fashion academy in Amsterdam. And my mother adored the drawings that she made in the magazine that she had subscription to. And when I heard of this, I said, well, then I, I'm going there. And so I finally broke with the, I stayed for art history, but I, I left the biology. And even though I liked other parts of it, I was an assistant of Professor Ile, who was an, an, uh, an animal man. So he studied illnesses in animals and I did the drawings through the microscope for him. So I loved that part, mm. but it was not my world. I wanted to still be part of the arts. And so I went to the Fashion Academy and I did the four year course in two years, was asked for the faculty and started teaching there. But after a couple of years, it was too small world, you know, the fashion world. But I made a lot of money at the time. Mm. So I told my parents, listen, I can now pay for what I want to do. And you don't have to pay for something I don't want to do, like the university. So why don't I now go to the academy? So I went to the Art Teachers Academy and kept the art history going. And so I... um, did that, and after that, when I did my exam, we had to do two exams, an exam for the school and an exam for the state, as because we worked for the state in state schools as art teachers. And so I did the, the exam, and there was a very famous man in the exam commission, and he was the director of the uh, Rotterdam Museum, and later of the Arnhem Museum. And when I did my exam for him about art contemplation, I would call it, not so much the history, I did that too, but the art talking about real paintings, he, when I, when he gave us the diplomas, he stood up and he said, Miss van der Hoeven, if I could give you an 11, I would have given you an 11. You were fabulous. And so, I was like, oh my God. 
So I was asked to teach at the Teachers Academy. And I then was asked for six years, I worked at the government at the other end of the table where I took the exams of teachers in the arts. So I made a lot of money and I had a great job there. And I had finally ended up where I wanted to end up. Mm -hmm. And that was in the arts. So I did my own stuff. I could make a lot of money because I had the Fashion Academy too. And the director of the Fashion Academy took me as her personal model to Barcelona, to London, to Paris, to Milan, you name it, everywhere. So I made a lot of money at the time. I worked for a couture house in Amsterdam for a while to bring stuff for people that wanted to buy it and not wanted to try it on. So I was called and I went over there. So I had a great job and I I just, but there was a time that I went to America. My sister lived in America. She had married an American and she um, lived in New York City. And I went there for an, for an Easter holiday and I never went back. Oh. I met Dick my husband, he was her landlord in here, in a new Fairview, because she rented a cabin there for years, huh. had always been telling everybody about it. And so one weekend, she took me to, they took me to the cabin, and I met the landlord, and in three days, we knew we were meant for each other. <laughs> and six weeks later, we were married. Wow. On the way to the airport, he was going to bring me back to, um, to Kennedy, to fly back and we were talking and talking and I said, why don't you turn around? I'm not going back. It's not going to work out. So we turned back and six weeks later we were married. And we were married for 20 years and then he died of brain cancer. Hmm. But it was the best 20 years of my life, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so I'm still here. And I apply to schools applied to Westcom because that was close to... I was asked for the Art Student League in New York City to teach there Mm -hmm. because I went every night, I went there for model drawing and it was a class that you could just... There was no teaching, but I went there to draw. And um, one of the uh, teachers there saw an exhibit that I had in New York, a one-man show, and he said, I'm going to retire and would you please take my place because I think you could teach my, what I'm teaching there and that is collage. And I said, um, I don't know, but let me think about it. And then we moved to here and I didn't want to commute. So when we were here, we built, Dick built me immediately a little studio. And that's how I began to work for myself for years and trying to get into Yale, into other schools and Westcom but never got an answer. They didn't need a little person from Holland. (laughs) (laughs) Nah. And so I finally was discovered by Walter Belke. Maybe you remember him. I do, yeah. Yeah. He was the chairman of the art department here, and he saw some of my stuff in the Mark Twain library. Hmm. And he asked for my phone number, and he called me, and he came to the studio and hired me on the spot. And that's, of course, a long time ago. That's something. (laughs) Yeah. What year was that? Um, 19, I think it was 10 years later, 1981, something mm. like that. Yeah, 1981, I got my job there. 
So there is a difference between being a, a wonderful artist and being a wonderful teacher, right? Uh, well, they say, he who can does, he who cannot teaches, which I think is ridiculous. <laughs> Just think of the 17th century. All these men, all these people were in the, under the tutelage of a big artist mm. in the Renaissance. They were not just doing it. Yes, some of them were geniuses. Yeah, but most of them learned from the big masters. They had to clean up first, and then slowly they were introduced to the painting and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So that's a nonsensical thing to say, I think. Do you enjoy teaching? Have you enjoyed I teaching? I love teaching. Teaching is really in my blood. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it anymore because it's not easy right now. Yeah, you don't have to. I don't have to. No, but I love doing it. And what do you love about it? Um, the, the contact with the students to to give them what I still have and still use some once in a while, but not much anymore since Dick died. I have not had the same freedom because I had to take care of his hobby, which was the land and the rent cabins and stuff like that. But um, I still can give it to somebody else mm -hmm. and to just see how you can get a kid from being nothing to something at the end of the year is for me a great satisfactory. And you teach art history now, right? Not Isn't anymore. It? No, since doing? it went digital. Oh. I miss it though, because I have 12,000 slides that had to be turned into digital. And at that time, the digital world scared the hell out of me. <laughs> I didn't grow up with it, you know. No, no. I still am bad at it, but I'm getting more getting better now. Do you have a cell phone? I have a cell phone and then I have an iPad. Oh. But I have, don't have a computer and I don't want to become as addicted as people are now to right. these things. And so I keep it to short messages and to long letters to Holland because mm. nobody can read my handwriting anymore. <laughs> it's so bad <laughs> with my rheumatic hands, you mm. know. So but that is it, that was one of the reasons but everything they, through all the I had built up the whole slide compartment in, at Westcom mm -hmm. I spent the whole uh, Christmas holiday to build that up got new cabinets got all these slides and had my own slides and assembled slides so that you can really do give a good class and I love teaching art history so I lectured in the neighborhood too quite a bit Audubon and people like that and um but when it turned digital, I know. Yeah, mostly students now have never seen a slide projector, I don't no, think. No, no, they've never seen a slide either. And I have still about 12,000 sitting in a closet. And they might go to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam oh. because they're antiques mm -hmm. by now. That's right. So, but anyway, it, 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 it didn't attract me at all because I followed a few classes with somebody who did teach in digital. He was standing in front of that and he had the, the whole thing right projected over his own face. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. And also what, what, what I hated is the fact that it is so easy to cheat. Mm. Every test that you give, they sat there with the phone mm -hmm. under the little bench here, with the names, with the dates. If you asked him to write a paper, it come right off the computer, so I read it and I said, now listen, this is not your language. This comes straight from the computer. And I tore it up and I threw it out. Mm -hmm. That sort of thing turned me off totally from art history. And I miss it mm. because I love teaching it because I had learned how to do it. Right. 
not to just do it with just years and names, no, mm -hmm. but go into the artist's mind because I painted myself a lot at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, you did it from a point of view. And of course, I grew up in Holland where this is the world of art is so incredibly important. 17th century, the, the Flemish primitive, 16th century, all that stuff was one of the big parts of it. Mm -hmm. I loved it. And also the more I've been everywhere, I've been in Egypt twice, I have been in Greece, in Rome, you name it. I went everywhere in Holland because it's right next door. Right. After the war, it was a little bit bombed down. And it, and it, it took a while to get built up. Oh, it took a long time to yeah. build up. And when I took Dick back, I was his guide. Yeah, right. Because Egypt was my specialty. Hmm. So I could read a lot of the stuff. And so we... He, we went with a French group, and so I could tell him exactly what it was all about. And so it's, it's, no, I miss it. I miss art history. And I'm now at an age that I'm beginning to forget the names. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I knew about 10,000 of them, That's you know. Right. And now I see a painting, and I know the painting, and I know where it is. But who'd been painted? Oh, my gosh, you know. Isn't that just like uh, learning the names of 6,000 plants when you were in biology? Yeah, but it was more, more to the point. I could, yeah. I could see that this is a geranium. Why do I have to know an Italian name? <laughs> and that is not the same in, in, in that. Right. In Holland, I was so familiar because one of my forefathers was Jan Steen. And Jan Steen was the big genre painter in the 17th century. You see him in, in, in art history books and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And so I have a had a big connection with that, you know. It's probably where the talent came from, mm -hmm. Mendel through. So I had, um, I had uh, a personal sort of connection also with art history. And then I traveled and saw it all with my own eyes. I love Egypt. Now I wouldn't go back, but I don't have to. Mm -mm. But when I took Dick back, you know, already you saw the deterioration and the, the atmosphere changed because of the threats. Mm -hmm. We were there doing the war with Israel, and so we couldn't get to Fayum and places like that. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and so you, you, and when we were on the Nile, I was sketching on the Nile. People were there with little donkeys and offering stuff, and I was sketching that sketchbook with me, and it was confiscated. Yeah. One of the soldiers came up and took my sketchbook, and they looked through it, and they saw nothing but people, and, and they thought I was sketching for the Israelis. Mm. So when they brought it back, everybody clapped. <laughs> and I said to the guy who took it, I said, pose for me, here, <laughs> draw you. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you know. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was but, but now I've, it's gone now. I still keep in touch with art history, of mm -hmm. course, but still. And if somebody wants me to hold a lecture where I can take my projectors, because I have still five of them sitting in my studio. <laughs> Then I can still do it because I still have all the slides, but basically it's that's part of the past. Mm -hmm. I've done it for 55 years, mm -hmm. teaching art history. Right. <laughs> taught it in Holland, taught it here. So. so it's a big part of you. It's a very big part of me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but do you feel like those war years are part of you still? Do you still, uh, uh, the, your reaction to things and your um, outlook on life, is, uh, is that uh, shaped by those years under German rule? I don't think so. Hmm. I don't think anymore, no. No, it comes back once in a while when I talk about it to people. Mm -hmm. 
people want to know about it because it is history, you know, sort of. But it is like another world to me now. It's part of my life. Yeah, it's a big part. Five years of it is a big part of your mm-hmm. life, especially in the tender years between 10 and 16, you know. Mm-hmm. But is there so much happened after that. My whole life in Amsterdam was incredible because I was a member of the university students and I was in the art world. So I lived it mm. fully at the time. I was wild at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I never smoked pot. And I didn't drink. Really? No. That was a big part of the drinking anyway. It was a big part of the culture. And Tell me about it. Mm. No, I did not drink and I did not smoke. How about your husband? Uh, Dick, he smoked a pipe. Hmm. He smoked cigarettes when he went to a pipe because I hated cigarettes. I didn't want him to smoke in the house. And finally he stopped altogether. Hmm. And he drank a glass of something when he came back at five o'clock. We had, I had a little bit of wine and he had his own little vodka. Mm-hmm. But that was it. And now I, very once in a while, if I have dinner with some people and they give me a glass of wine, I put a little water in it and I drink it. <laughs> but I didn't develop a taste for it really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That helps your long life too. Well, and exercise, mm-hmm. which became also a very big part of my life. Hmm. I teach still Pilates oh, right. classes on Saturday morning because I made a special right. study of this German hmm. who helped veterans, you know, after the war to get back to their lives. And here it is a bit watered down. It's more like yoga than like what he meant it to be. So I did get my diploma yoga and I did get it in Pilates. Hmm. So... I have done that now for a long, long time. And you still teach those? I teach it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on Saturday mornings I still have a class. Yeah, I, and that keeps you going too. And that makes that you can eat everything you want. And That's I'm right. a big, passionate chocolate eater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It must be interesting to uh, think about your life so varied and so um, uh, so many things that you did and uh, did with a lot of verb too and yeah. uh, energy yeah oh yeah it, it, and I can and there's no dull part in my life hmm. when I think about it it has always been full of events and happenings and I've always been active mm-hmm. and I always wanted to learn and so I have a teacher in my class now, and I admire her courage because she sits there with her own students sometimes. (laughs) But it is true, you can learn your whole life. Mm -hmm. And it, especially later later on with with, uh, health that became so important later on, Mm -hmm. and thank God I never suffered of hunger to a point that it affected my life later on. Mm -hmm. I was lucky for that, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but a lot of people, yeah, hunger can kill you. Sure. Yeah, but I, I, when I look back on my life, there's not a day that is not an adventure. Hmm. I still see it that way because otherwise why would I still be here? Mm-hmm. Or any of us really, you're right. That is the way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah, it is. Well, Polonia, thank you very much for coming and sharing all that with us.
Hey, Barbara, how's it going? Good, how about you? It's uh, good. Everything's good. Did you get a chance to uh, listen to the Marian Anderson podcast yet and find out who Marian Anderson is? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, she didn't. She will by next week. Oh, right? geez, I forgot. We have to talk. Okay. It's, I have to remember. <laughs> yeah, because you were, <laughs> you just hook it into your phone and put on your earphones and then you can uh, listen anywhere. You should, should have told me this before we started recording. <laughs> I got to quickly listen to it. <laughs> you got to pull it out these. in the background. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. You said last week your boyfriend doesn't listen to the podcast. You don't listen to the podcast. I do listen to the podcast. Yeah, okay. I'm on the podcast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I listen to it too. My family does not listen to the podcast, no matter how many hints I drop. <laughs> Pete, does your wife listen to the podcast? Only when I put it on for her. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what that means? What? We can talk about them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good Barbara, point. <laughs> Barbara, you start. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's just start with the No, bed. you start talking about your boyfriend. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, he sucks. No, just, <laughs> he's great. He's great. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. We have a lot of events uh, coming up, but I just want to start with the SGA ones, obviously, because, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, first of all, we... Um, are looking for an artist to do the SGA Day shirt because uh, SGA has never really had like one single event during Westfest, um, so we decided to do one this year called SGA Day. We're still like working out what we want the day to be, but we're trying to find an artist to design the shirt for us because the past uh, past two shirts, like for Clubs Carnival and for Homecoming, I had to do myself and my committee had to do um as well so it's like we want other we want student artists to come out and like show their art you know it should be about the students not just about like us in a committee trying to come up with these things right. you're not really an artist yeah right? no not at all i mean the club's carnival shirt came out pretty cool um but you know it's fine um so yeah they're gonna get if they if they bring in the design and we choose it they're gonna get a 75 dollars visa gift card so that's pretty cool it's I mean, it doesn't yeah, no take kidding. too long to do an SGA shirt. I mean, we were going to do, um, honestly, like, SGA shirt. You just put, like, the SGA logo or something and, like, Chuck. I'm, don't tell I'm, the artist what to do. Yeah, just actually, say you don't put Chuck on there. I'm so sick of seeing Chuck everywhere on these shirts. Don't do something generic. Do something cool. But, yeah, if you win, then you can get $75 in a Visa gift card. So that's pretty cool to spend anywhere. Are you t- putting it other places besides this podcast, too? To let yeah, know? yeah. I've made an advertisement and everything put on social media and cool. all that. So how do they submit their designs? Uh, so there's, if it's to my email, so sgavpstudentrelations at wcsu.edu. Um, and if you need like more information or like have questions or anything, you can just email that email or like message us on Instagram or Facebook or anything because the ad or the the poster or flyer or whatever is up on all social media. So cool. Yeah, another thing that we're doing for SGA is that SGA elections are coming up, so you can become a senator for the student government if you'd like. Um, the applications can be picked up at the Student Center 227, which is a CSI office, and they are due by February 26th at 5 p.m. So if you're interested in becoming a senator or even a representative, uh, they didn't put representatives on here, but representatives are elected by the president. Mm. Um, so if you want to be a representative, if you can't, don't have enough time to be a senator, you can talk to CSI or you can contact our president at sgaprez, P-R-E-S, at wcsu.edu, and he can like appoint you to be a representative if he believes that you're you know qualified and everything. You're going to go through a vetting process and all of that. Um, but yeah, SGA is a really cool opportunity. 
And if you're in SGA already, you can run for the executive board too. Um, but obviously, like the people that are already in SGA pretty much know about elections because they're also not going to be part of SGA. So if you're interested, uh, February 26th, 5 p.m. You have to turn in your application. It's really not that hard. Uh, there's a GPA requirement. I think it's around 3.0, maybe. Actually, I'm, I'm lying. I think it's like 2.5, honestly. Um, it goes higher as you become like executive board or a chair or stuff like that. There's a different GPA requirement, but it's all listed on the application in CSI. So if you have any questions, just go to them. But yeah, it's pretty cool. It's really it changed my life, honestly, going into SGA. <laughs> Especially if you're a commuter, because I was a commuter. I still am a commuter, but I really didn't have a lot of like contact on campus. I just went to school, I'm at home, and then when I joined SGA, like I started joining more clubs and getting more involved on everything. And now I'm part of the executive board for like at least four clubs and also SGA and all these things. So it'll really boost your resume too. So that's cool. Have you decided what you're running for yourself? Yes. So I've decided to continue in my own position and run for VPSR. So that means if I win, I'll still be on the podcast. Excellent. Yeah. So Vegas 2018. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So other things that we have going on with SGA is an event that I'm personally really excited about. Um, We're having our first town hall meeting of the semester, and it's about access to institutional aid for undocumented students. Our panelists are incredible. We have people like um, Carolina and um, Camilla Borotello. I can never pronounce the last names. I think you got it right. Borotello? Okay. Mm -hmm. They're on the the panel. They're representatives of Connecticut Students for a Dream, and they are just so passionate about all these things. They're on the Undocu Ally Task Force with me, and they're just so informed, and just, it's crazy. They're going to be excellent. Jasenia Delgado is our chief executive officer on campus, and she's going to be the... uh, the moderator and then um another woman is going there's another there's a student uh, representative as well and then another um faculty representative that are going to be there they're all excellent people and hopefully it's gonna be really cool it's on wednesday february 28th at 3 30 p.m in the student center theater and we're gonna have pizza and soda and all that so everyone should come and it's really in the center of like, yeah. it's right in the student center, so you're going to walk by it, just stop in, listen, maybe say something. Cool. <laughs> uh, it's really cool, though. We're inviting, like, state legislators and that kind of thing. There's going to be um, uh, a petition, petitions and stuff going around. Uh, so it should be really cool. It's our mm-hmm. first one, but we pub- we're publicizing everywhere, and hopefully it, it's, like, a really cool event that works out. Yeah, so that's all SGA stuff. Um, there's also other things going on. There's a pack trip. Um, again, I talked about this before, but there's Boston, it's the Boston Celtics versus the New York Knicks. Um, and that's a trip on the 24th. Students are $30 and guests are 85 and the bus leaves, um, from Midtown at four and from Westside at 430. And you're going to be at New York, um, in New York until like 10, um, or something like that. So it should be really, really cool. Yeah. It's a safe way to go enjoy a game there. Yeah, exactly. And not have to drive. Yeah, and it's cheap too. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, PAC is doing bumper stickers on the same day as the uh, town hall, 28th. It's a Wednesday, and it's from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then the, the, the town hall starts at 3.30, so it's like right after the other. It's in the Midtown Student Center lobby. And yeah, it's bumper it, stickers. It, well, so what is it? You create your own bumper sticker? Usually or? it's something like that. Like mm-hmm. they usually have like templates or something and you can like customize it or something like that i got the coolest thing from them once they did like signs and i got like 
parking reserved for and then like I put in VPSR <laughs> and I put it on my Snapchat story and everyone got so mad at me they were like you have a free parking spot like you're gonna you can park you have a parking spot what the hell like why and I was like yeah I do <laughs> like I didn't even deny it I was like yeah huh yeah I do get jealous <laughs> be jealous yeah <laughs> but yeah it's fake it's, it's on my wall now I kind of wanted to like put it up over something to see if anyone would notice yeah but I even talked to the executive board about that. I was like, can we get our own parking spots? And they were like, well, we're we're the Student Government Association for the students. Why are we taking away their parking spots? And I'm like, because it's cool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I want to park closer to the building. Yeah, but we didn't do that. So whatever. <laughs> um, they was... need more people thinking like you on the uh, executive board there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and gather some they gather some people to run with me that are, have right. a similar mindset. Um <clears throat> And I'm also sick, so that's why I keep coughing, so excuse me. Um, Also, there's Pack Broadway trip. Tickets go on sale on the 28th, too. Um, And the trip is on in March 24th, on March 24th, though. But tickets go on sale on the 28th. Um, You go to see Wicked. Students are 30 and guests are 75. And the bus leaves Midtown on the 24th of March uh, from Westside at 10 a.m. And from Midtown at 9.30 a.m. And then they're in New York at 8 p.m. Couldn't they find a bigger show than Wicked? I don't know. I've never actually seen Wicked. Have you seen Wicked? I haven't, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's why. We haven't... People haven't seen it. <laughs> I haven't seen Cats either. I mean, honestly, probably because the bigger shows everyone's seen. Like, mm. who hasn't seen The Lion King? Me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the day that they do... I think they've done The Lion King before. Probably. Yeah, but probably so. That is really worth seeing, see it. too. I've seen, like, a few different ones. I saw Mamma Mia. It wasn't that great. I saw Les Miserables. That was not that great either. Um, I mean, Mamma Mia was pretty good, I guess. But I also saw this. The best one I saw, it was like something about God. It was like, I forget his name. It was a comedy. And it was just this guy saying that he was going to rewrite the Ten Commandments. And it was the funniest thing ever. Like people, <laughs> But in this day and age, everyone would be offended. But it's fine. Was would, it on Broadway? Yeah, it was on Broadway. Hmm. It was so, so funny. I just forget the name of it. But it had something to do with God, and it was so funny. <laughs> I can't, yeah. It, it wasn't was. the Book of Mormon, right? <laughs> no, no. I haven't seen that one. I heard that one's good, too. Yeah. But it was a different one. It was like this famous guy, like a famous actor. Hmm. Oh, and I also saw Romeo and Juliet. That one was really cool because, um, what's that guy's name? Uh, Bloom? Orlando Bloom. He, he was, was there. Him. Yeah, he was Romeo. <laughs> and I just pretty much chose... It was so terrible. I don't hate to go off on a tangent, but um, <laughs> it was so bad. Well, here we go. Because, <laughs> because my family from Brazil were visiting, and they wanted to go on Broadway, you know, to see a musical. <laughs> and I was like, let's watch Romeo and Juliet. Turns out it wasn't a musical. It was barely a musical. Yeah. They just kept speaking English the whole time. And they were like sitting there like, this is horrible. And I was enjoying myself because Orlando Bloom was shirtless. And I was like, okay, this is, my, this is great. But I felt so bad because they paid a lot of money to see like something yeah. they didn't even understand. Like they should have gone to see Lion King. That would have been worth it. But no, I made them go to Ro- <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. They could follow the action though. Okay, They kind of knew the outline, didn't they, yeah. of Romeo and Juliet? <laughs> I don't know. I felt so bad. My, they, half of them fell asleep. Ooh. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have they ever come back? Actually, yeah, they did. Oh. I mean, but I did not go to Broadway with them the second time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I almost made them go see them to comedy, and they were like, this is going to be horrible again. They're not going to understand anything. 
but yeah okay moving on <laughs> um there's gonna be a ring event um it's the western connecticut state university ring event it's gonna be thursday february 22nd tomorrow from 11 a.m to 3 p.m in the student center lobby basically you can get like you know class rings and that kind of thing uh, class rings yeah should be pretty cool the pictures are cool it's pretty much for seniors but you can order your class ring there um also i saw this advertisement from delta gamma Phi recently they're doing a 2018 bottle and can recycling event so it's kind of late in the game because it started february 1st but i didn't see it until now but it goes until wednesday and if you win if you like raise um the most if you like recycle the most or something like that you can win free soho for your chapter or for your organization or something it's kind of late in the game because they've probably been recycling for like a long time. So it goes till next Wednesday, uh, yeah. whatever that is. You give all the cans to Delta Gamma Phi sisters and then, yeah. Here's a tangent. My wife said one day, hey, uh, we can make a lot of money. We drink all this, uh, have all these recyclable cans. We don't drink soda, but we drink, you know, stuff that comes in cans. And not Red Bull or anything. And, <laughs> so uh, what? <laughs> Are you talking about alcohol? <laughs> no, it's all, uh, you know, uh, non-alcoholic stuff. And bags. maybe a few beer bottles. But so we have like 10 bags, grocery bags of cans in my wow. house now. Some are in the um, trunk of my car. And I keep saying, hey, are we going to recycle these? Hey, and I'm being very gentle about it and nice and just suggesting that maybe. So now I'm just going to take and put them in the car and bring them to this place <laughs> oh yeah that's a good idea you're gonna catch up to everyone where uh where do i bring them you give them to a delta gamma phi sister yeah. so i guess you can contact them through they didn't put an email on here but they put their instagram which is wcsu underscore dg phi delta gamma phi um yeah i'm sure they'd love to help you recycle those bottles yeah, it's really funny in my house <laughs> <laughs> i saw this really funny post about like, hey, I'm gonna donate to Goodwill, but first I'm gonna drive around. Uh, they're gonna stay in my car for four weeks. <laughs> These bags are gonna stay in the, my trunk. Yeah, that's what happens. Pretty much, yeah. It's a good intention, but you know, stuff happens. Uh, so also there's Chuck's Dodgeball Tournament um, put on by West Rec. It's co-ed, six on six, double elimination, and it's on February 24th, it's a Saturday, and check-in is at 1.30 with a 2 p.m. start. So you can sign up um, until the 23rd. That just sounds horrible. I can't imagine going to play dodgeball. <laughs> it's in the Berkshire gym. Have you seen the movie Dodgeball? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. And I remember playing dodgeball as a kid, and it wasn't, uh, yeah, I didn't have fun then. I was pretty good. I'm pretty hmm. small, like, so it was, they, people can't catch me. I'll, mm -hmm. like, run away. I'm not good at, like, throwing the ball, because they'll catch it, and then I'll be out, but I usually just, like, run around, <laughs> knowing I'm usually like, the last one there, and then they're like, ah, shit, I have to throw a ball now. They have different balls now. They don't let us use the kind that uh, we used to use in school ball. Oh. It's really soft. They're soft now, and they oh. don't make that horrible sound that's yeah. burned into your brain forever right. as it hits you. <laughs> Oh, well, that's all different, then. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's what I used to use, too. Oh, okay. But yeah, those are all the events I have for today. That's it? Yeah. Okay, and you can talk about going to New Orleans. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> uh, so I went to New Orleans for ACJS. It's a conference. 
But SACJS. It's the Academy of Justice and Sciences. Yeah. So you went for school. Yes, actually. Um, but luckily enough, <laughs> we went during Mardi Gras. <laughs> what a happy coincidence. <laughs> so yeah, I presented my research. I did research on um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Act and how the disqualification of being... So if you're disqualified from being reaping the benefits of that act, um, you can... It kind of leads you into a life of crime. Not like you're going to rob a bank, but like you're going to use... Um, like a face, fake social security card or a fake work permit or uh, work illegally under the under the table and like not do your taxes stuff like that it like leads you to criminal behavior and so I presented on that and that was really cool but that was only one day <laughs> the rest of How the many day days were you there? we were there for I think a total of six days mm-hmm. and we we hit I mean we didn't get there for all of Mardi Gras but we got there for the last two days we got Fat Tuesday and like Monday um, so yeah that was. It was very interesting. You know what's really funny though? I thought I knew what Mardi Gras was. I thought it was just like beads and whatever, but I had no idea what you had to do to get beads. <laughs> I was pretty clueless, yeah. So it was it was really funny. I don't know if I should tell the story. Um, but yeah, the first you can thing edit it out. If you <laughs> okay. So we get to the hotel and um, so we're in a group of like 12 people and I went with my friend Richie and we get out of the bus literally like five feet from the bus to the hotel and this random woman comes up to Richie and she says you want a flower and he's like yeah sure why not she goes show me your oh (laughs) (laughs) it was terrible and I had no idea that you had to I had no idea what you had to do to get beads so I, I just thought this random woman just came up to him show it like Mm-hmm. Show me whatever. And I was like, I was looking at him like, what? So we like kind of like ran inside, but the whole rest of the tri- trip went downhill with beads. <laughs> <clears throat> there were some nice old ladies that would throw beads. <laughs> yeah. So wow. It was really fun though. So you didn't get any beads? You know, there was enough old ladies there and like, it was weird. Some people were just very gross and grimy, but others were like really nice and they just throw it. So I actually got a lot of beads, but I did not lose my dignity. So... Good. That's good. <laughs> it's funny because Terrence Dwyer went with us. He was yeah. our advisor, and he didn't. He didn't come back. He, he didn't go with us, obviously. But we like asked him at the end, like, "Did you get any beads?" <laughs> He's like, "I'm not answering." <laughs> <laughs> it was a really fun trip. He didn't go to New Orleans with you. No, he did go. He did go to New Orleans, but he didn't like go out with us. Obviously, like we uh-huh. just we saw him like for a few hours during the day for the conference, and then we'd go out and do our own thing. People tried alligator there and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I don't know. You didn't do alligator? I, I had so many opportunities to um, try alligator, but I'm kind of just like not about that. I just, How about I, the prawns? Is that what they call them? The prawns or the uh, crayfish? Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the cra- something like that. Crawfish. Crawfish. Um, yeah, people tried those too. I didn't want to try it either. I don't like lobster or like shellfish or anything like that, really. So I wasn't really about it. I kind of just had... What did I eat there? I ate like... I don't know, random restaurants here so and there. So you know when you go to New Orleans, the food's a big thing? Yeah. That's why you go. And the jazz, did you see any jazz? Yes, we saw a lot of live jazz. That was really, really nice. That okay. was the best part. During the day, it was it was crazy to see Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras. And then the last day that we were there, we went back to Bourbon. Oh, we were there like every night. But like the last day when everything was finally cleaned up, we went back during the day and it was gorgeous. Hmm. And I was like, how is this the same place? Like, <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. It is crazy, I understand, during Mardi Gras especially. Yeah, <laughs> but it was definitely worth it. Hmm. If anyone's thinking going to Mardi Gras, like, just bring some goggles or sunglasses or something so you can just 
avert your eyes every every two seconds. But other than that, it's fine. It's really fun. That's good. And you had your SGA whatever luncheon or uh, yeah, we had a retreat. retreat. So we went to Hotel Zero Degrees. That was really cool. The hotel is gorgeous. Mm. Oh my god, I had never. Like, I'd stayed in a hotel once before, like, in Danbury. Just, I forget why. Like, just, I don't remember. I think, like, renovations or something in my house. And it was, like, it was all right, you know? But this hotel was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely gorgeous. I guess it's, like, a five-star hotel. <laughs> I think we talked about it. But, like, the e-board had our own king beds. Yeah. King, like, bedrooms and stuff. It was gorgeous. It was insane. I We only stayed one night, and I told, like, our VPIA, Ryan Holly, he's the one that, like, coordinated everything and, like, put everything together. It was a really good trip. I told him I was like, next time, we're doing two nights at least. Because <laughs> it was gorgeous. I didn't want to leave. But, yeah. The food's pres- good there too, right? Yeah, yeah. They have a restaurant. Um, I think it's called Tara. Um, it was good, actually. I, th- I think I told you I, t- I, choose- I chose the menu. Um, oh, it was all right. right. It, we ate a lot. It was weird. Like, I thought I ordered more food, but they did a lot of salads, and it ended up being really good, though. Like, I wasn't mad about it. Like, they didn't have every all of the food that I ordered, like, really? that I requested. It was kind of weird. Like, I kind of wanted to be like, where's my potatoes? Like, because it was mostly just, like, salad and steak and, like, I don't know. But it was really good. It was really good food. They had cookies, too. They didn't have a lot of desserts. Hmm. That's another reason to be on the uh, SGA, right? Oh, yeah. That's a huge reason to be on the SGA because we go on so many trips because we have, like, trainings and retreats and conferences and everything. Everything is essential. But on every single trip, we have a lot of fun, too. Mm. And we take into account, like, during the retreat, like, we made sure that it ended, like, at 8 p.m. And then that after that, everyone could do their own thing because we don't want them to be exhausted all the time. Right. And the next day, I think we started at, like, 9. So it wasn't terrible. It wasn't, like, 7 in the morning. Mm-hmm. But yeah, actually Carlos and Ryan, uh, the VPIA and the president went, while I was in New Orleans, they went to NACA with uh, PAC and they had a lot of fun there too. They Napa, California? No, NACA. Oh. <laughs> the NACA <laughs> conference. It was in Boston. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So we all, the whole, exec, almost all of the executive board, like three fifths of it were traveling this past week um, for, you know, the benefit of... Westcon. You better not talk it up too much, though. You'll have people running against you. Yeah, that's true. I actually have a lot of competition this year, I think. Really? I've been hearing things. Yeah, people are gunning for VPSR this year, which is fine, you know. Do they have to sign up to run for that specific post? Yeah, so uh, to run for eboard, you have to be on Senate for at least... So for parliamentarian, VP of Finance, and VP of Student Relations, I think it's eight weeks. And then if you want to be president or VPIA, because those are the... Um, they work together directly, you have to run together and you have to be on Senate for at least 16 weeks. Hmm. So um, people can run specifically for that position and you have to run. And then if you lose that, you can either, you can also run as a Senator. Um, you can run as both Senator and eboard. so that if you lose eboard, you can be a Senator. And if you win, then you just, you're not a Senator, obviously. Um, so yeah. So somebody's running against you, you think? Yeah, I think at least like, at least like one or two people are running against me, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, not worried. Uh, What's meant to be will be. And I think I have a lot of experience. I've, I've been talking to everyone too. Like I wasn't sure what path I wanted to do, if I wanted maybe to do VPA, just like switch it up or something or do VPSR. But this past like week um, while I was in New Orleans, actually, I realized how much I like events and that kind of thing. Hmm. And coming back and like planning this whole town hall and like getting everything done to fruition and stuff is, I forgot how much it excites me because we've been kind of on a pause of events after Fall Bash. It was kind of slow. Mm-hmm. So I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to do it. And then now doing this town hall again, it's just a small event, but it's so cool. And like, 
just really excited to continue because I feel like now I finally know my position really well and I like could really execute it really well to do another whole year. Right. That's what Izzy did before me, the, the old VPSR. He did two straight years of VPSR. Oh, I didn't know that's so, what his job was. Yeah, hmm. it was pretty, it's pretty cool. Like I feel like if I win, I could do it. <laughs> well, we'll just make sure you win, right? Yeah, we can. <laughs> yeah, let's make sure of it. <laughs> we could have like a whole talk about this when it comes closer if you want that'd be right. pretty cool we got I think. scott and pete there they can do the uh, electronic accounting and um <laughs> yeah they know computers yeah they can they run can my campaign campaign manager <laughs> <laughs> well i'm not supposed to this talk is about being that. recorded <laughs> oh we can edit that right <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you barbara thank you Paul. good session yeah. see you next time see you Thank you to our producers, Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, who do all the work to make this podcast possible. When you find WCSU 411 on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, please consider subscribing so you can keep up with all the news about Westcon. After you subscribe, leave a comment there or on Twitter at WCSU 411. Until the next edition, this is Paul Steinmetz 